So I've been looking forward to speaking. Uh, I was advertised as speaking on Nehemiah chapter 10 and 11. That's false advertisement. I'm not going to speak on Nehemiah 11. Uh, I will speak on Nehemiah 10 in the Lord's will. It's the conclusion of a wonderful portion that started in what we heard about last week in Nehemiah 8 and 9. It's the conclusion of that. It's a wonderful portion. As I've been studying it on and off for the past month, it's, it's challenged uh, and encouraged me in various ways a lot. I hope it does the same for you. Nehemiah 11 is a wonderful passage. I encourage you to read it at home. Um, maybe next week's speaker will uh, bring it up a little bit. I don't know. Um, but as I was thinking of getting ready to talk today, uh, what I was thinking of a lot was, why am I doing this? Why are we studying? You know, I, I tend to think deeply about things way, way too deeply th- sometimes. And um, thinking, well, why am I studying Nehemiah? Why am I studying the Old Testament? And um, here's some things I thought of, and, and these may not be things that, that occur to you or you worry about, but um, I'm, I'm thinking, well, why am I studying this? Because this book was written 2,400 years ago. That's a, that's a long time ago. Unless you're a historian or a history teacher, most of the time you don't spend a whole lot of time, you know, reading or trying to learn from anything that's more than a few years old. And 2,400 years is just an immense amount of time. Uh, this is before the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire is really a long time ago, and this is really before Rome in any significant way rose to power. Um, so, so why? And uh, the things that came to my mind, which have encouraged my heart as I've looked into this portion, is three things. First of all, the fact that people don't change. Uh, technology changes a lot. Nehemiah didn't even have a flip phone, much less a smartphone. Um, he didn't have a phone of any sort, didn't even have a landline. Okay, really, I mean, landlines are old school these days, and and he didn't even have that. Um, So technology changes an awful lot over the years, uh, but people don't change. You look in historical records, and and not just the Bible, but if you look in good historical primary sources from a long time ago, people are people. Culture does change, and that can affect things a little bit. But people's hopes and joys and sorrows and the way they respond to loss, things like that, that really doesn't change. People People are people. And so the things that we can learn from even an old portion like this is significant. Um, also, God has not changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews, but it's certainly true of, of the Lord also. He is unchanging. He may change what he reveals about himself. He may change how he deals with people, but he himself doesn't change. And so we can learn much from the Old Testament. And while Revelation is progressive, that is how God deals with people and the ways in which he reveals himself does change over time. Um, Still, as we look at how he dealt with people in the past and how they responded, and we're going to see a lot about the response of the people here in Nehemiah, I think there is much to learn. So as you approach the Old Testament, as I approach this, I did the typical thing you're supposed to do for good Bible study. Um, You know, look carefully at the text you know, read it and consider it, try to make sure that you, you get all the details, uh, spend some time seeking to interpret it, to understand, well, what did it mean then? What did it mean to its original audience? Um, and, and typically, if you read it carefully, prayerfully, with the help of the Spirit of God, you compare scripture to scripture, you can get a pretty good handle on that. You don't need to, and some would tell you that you do, but it's it's really not true. You don't need to have a, a deep understanding of, you know, half a dozen ancient languages and know everything about the culture. You know, it's not that those things can't be helpful. They, they can fill in some gaps here and there, um, but you don't you don't really need that. My experience is if I spend a lot of time studying the word of God and then go to the scholarly commentaries, you know, there's nuances that I missed here and there. There's turns of a phrase that maybe I didn't understand because I had it in English and it's a little bit different in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. 
but, but you get most of it. So, so you seek to understand what did it mean then, and then apply it to yourselves. And that's really sort of going to be the structure of what I'm going to be doing now. I'm going to be looking very briefly at Nehemiah 8 and 9, just to set the stage, even though that was covered quite nicely last week. I'm going to go on to talk a little bit about, well, then how did the people respond, which we see in Nehemiah 10, and then how can that apply to, to our lives today? So uh, looking at Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm really, I'm trusting the fact that either you have read these chapters or that you will go home and read these chapters because for the sake of time, I'm not going to read everything, um, <clears throat> especially in Nehemiah 8 and 9. Excuse me a moment. So Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, they asked Ezra he, um, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel, verse 6. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen, says that they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they had stood up and now they bowed low. And in verse eight, it uh, goes on to talk about how they read from the word, from the book, from the word, from the law of God, excuse me. So this gathering was during the Hebrew months of Tisri, uh, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. It's the seventh month of the Hebrew year. Uh, it's a very important month, which might've been partly why the people were as open and eager to the word of God as they were, because in the Hebrew calendar of the seven major feasts of God, which occur during the Hebrew calendar, three out of the seven occur in that month, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, starting the first of the month, which is about when they were reading the Feast of the um, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, which is the 10th of the month, and then the Feast of Booths, um, which was uh, the 15th of the month. And I think I may have had the name of one of those wrong, but I'm going to move on anyway. So um, so the people perhaps would have been a little bit more open because of the timing of this. And they respond very emotionally uh, in worship and in humility before God. Um, as we read a little further in the chapter, which again was dealt with last week, then they go on to weep because they realize how far short that they fall. And yet Nehemiah and Ezra and the other leaders encourage them Actually, you should rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Send portions to those who don't have anything. You know, in, enjoy a, fe a festival time. And, and there is that exquisite balance, isn't there, uh, which I think we'll see more of as we go along, where, you know, the word of God on one hand shows us what a mess we are. It's a very accurate mirror. And we realize how far short we fall of who the Lord is and who we should be. And at the same time, there's encouragement to joy as we recognize how good and kind the Lord is and how much he loves us. Uh, and, and we dwell on who he is rather than just on who we are. And there's a reason for joy in that. So there's that, that balance between these two things. In, in the rest of the chapter, uh, the leaders gather together to hear the word further. Uh, they decide to celebrate the Feast of Booths, uh, which it says that they celebrated it as no one else had since the time of Joshua. That doesn't mean no one had celebrated it but perhaps they celebrate it in a grander and, and more complete way, you know, with a larger percentage of the people participating than any time since the time of Joshua, which at this point had probably been something like a thousand years prior to this. So then in chapter nine, now in chapter nine, at the beginning of chapter nine, we're after the celebration of, of that um, feast. And that celebration had gone on for like seven or eight days during which time they had the word of God being read to them on a regular basis for a long period of time, every single day. 
And this is about a day after the conclusion of this. So they've really been exposed at this point to the word of God. And it says in Nehemiah 9, verse 1, on the 24th of this month, the sons of Israel uh, assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Verse 3, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of a day. And for another fourth, they were confessed and worshiped. So they're hearing the word of God, having heard it daily for over a week before this. Now they're once again hearing the public reading of the word of God, probably for at least three hours a day, every day, and then following that by three hours of a time of worship and prayer and confession before God, um, which is awesome. And just as an aside, I'm, I'm going to leave most of the application to the end, but I can't resist on this one. You know, just as an aside, think about if we were to invest more quality and quantity time with the Lord, um, spending time reading his word on a regular basis, spending time in prayer as need be in confession and in worship personally, not just on Sundays when we gather together, what kind of difference would that make in our lives? We're probably for most of us not going to be able to spend six hours a day on that. I mean, there may be individual days in which you can and should, but, but probably on an ongoing basis, 365 days a year, you're probably not going to be able to spend six hours a day on that. But, you know, wherever you're at, if you spent some more time, um, quality time as well as quantity, um, and it's really hard to have one without the other, how might that transform our lives? So then the people, as led by the Levites, <clears throat> go on and they pray. Again, we heard more about this last week, and it's, I believe, the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And during that prayer, they start out with the grandeur of God. They start out with thinking about God as the creator of all. I'm not going to read those verses. Some of them were read last week. Um, and they consider who God is. And then they sort of go through a survey of, of the history of Israel. It's a really wonderful passage to sort of bring to your mind all that God had done. They, they think about how God had called Abraham. Uh, they think about how God had kept his promises to Abraham and had redeemed and delivered his people from Egypt uh, in the time of the Exodus. Uh, they think about um, how God has taken them out in the wilderness and blessed them there. They, they think about the people's rebelliousness and failure in the wilderness, which was great. And yet God was patient and God stayed with them and God took care of them and God gave them the food that they needed and preserved them in every way. He brought them into the land. He gave them victory over the peoples of the land. And then what happened? Well, no, they weren't faithful to God. They rebelled and the Lord, you know, sent discipline and they repented and came back and God forgave them and blessed them. And then they rebelled again. And it's the time of the judges. And there's that cycle of rebellion and repentance and, and redemption. And it just keeps happening again and again and again. And then you get into the times of the kings. And again, there's this, this unfaithfulness to God. And yet, because of who God is, he's good and kind to them. But finally, they end up in the exile. Syria takes away the northern kingdom. Babylon takes away the southern kingdom. They end up in exile. And at the end of this whole passage, they acknowledge in just a very striking way in the last few verses of chapter nine, which again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read, um, but they acknowledge that they're slaves. We're slaves in this land. Everything we have is for the kings. We are slaves. That's a, that's a tough, tough nut. 
That's a tough thing to acknowledge. They're better than the people of Jesus's day were, at least the Jewish leaders in Jesus's day. Because if you read chapter eight of uh, John's gospel, which we might go to actually later on, um, the people then were unwilling to admit that they were slaves and they were slaves. Rome called the shots. You know, they, they could not do a whole lot without Roman approval, but they didn't want to admit that. They wanted to somehow feel, no, we're, we're actually sort of free, but they weren't. They were slaves. They didn't want to admit the bad situation they were in. But the people of uh, Nehemiah's day, they were willing to admit the bad situation they were in, which is good. It was a good thing for them to do. So, so, so that brings us to chapter 10, because having heard the word of God read, having um had themselves led by the Levites in this time of prayer, recalling all that had happened in the past, God's kindness and goodness, and yet their rebellion that had finally led them to the difficult situation they were in, they determined that they were going to make a covenant between themselves and God. They wanted to recommit themselves to God in light of both their own failure and the difficult situation they were in, but also God's goodness and mercy, knowing that that would be a good thing for them to do. And so in uh, verse 1, uh, of chapter 10, it says, now on this sealed document were the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and a whole bunch of other names. I know in some of these other messages, other people have been bold enough to read a bunch of those names, and I'm not going to do that. Um, there's a lot of names. There's, there's 85 names altogether listed there. Uh, in addition to Nehemiah, there's 22 priests, 18 Levites, and 44 leaders. There's a lot of people listed there. And it goes on in verse 28 to say, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gate, gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and all those who acknowledge an understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances, and his stature. And this jacket is getting too warm. So these people, consciously or unconsciously, are really echoing what the people of Israel had said about a thousand years before that. In the time of Moses, uh, just a single verse, you don't need to turn unless you want to, uh, Exodus 24, verse 3, says that Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the law. He's telling them you know, what God has said, here's the law. And it says that all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything you've said, we're good. We will do it all. Okay, and here these people are basically saying the same thing. All that has been said, we're going to do it all. And may a curse from God come upon us if we fail to do it. It's pretty bold. And we're going to talk about in just a little bit how wise that was or was not, but their heart was very definitely in the right place. You know, they've heard the word of God and they are responding with a commitment that we want to, we want to do what you tell us to do, Lord, and you can't fault anyone ever for, for, for doing that. I just want to mention a couple of specifics of further on in the chapter, what it talks about that they commit to do in verse 30. Um, they say, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day. And we will forgo the crops on the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. 
And then following that, they make a series of other promises, which mostly center around supporting the worship and work of the temple, including contributing significant amounts of either money or goods for the support of the work of the temple. And again, I, I do encourage you, you know, the fact that I don't read some of these verses for the sake of time does not mean they're not important. Please do read them. Um, so th- there's several things that they're committing to here. Um, one thing is they're committing to avoid intermarriage. And as our brother uh, was spot on last week in mentioning, uh, that commitment to avoid intermarriage had nothing to do with race or ethnicity. Uh, in fact, if you had seen the people of Israel and then looked at the people in the surrounding areas, there's a very good likelihood you wouldn't be able to tell one from the other. You know, they were all sort of dark-skinned, swarthy-looking individuals and probably some cultural similarities, too. And, you know, apart from the difference that the Word of God would have made in the lives of the Jews, hopefully— you know, you wouldn't probably see a whole lot of differences. This wasn't about race or ethnicity. This was about being separated and holy to God. Um, God had commanded, you know, had given the law to the nation of Israel, had set them apart in a very special way to be his own special possession. And ultimately, um, with the goal that they would show forth who he was to other peoples, which they tended for the most part to fail at. But this, their, their role was to be a holy nation for him. And if they were to intermarry with the peoples around them, that was going to lead them astray. And virtually, with almost no exceptions, every time you look in the uh, Old Testament and you see the people of God intermarrying with the pagans around them, it just causes disaster, both individual personal disaster in people's lives, as well as national disaster. Solomon, you know, one of the uh, greatest leaders of Israel, took foreign wives, and it was disastrous in his own life, as well as the history of the nation of Israel. And so, what the people are committing to and committing to not intermarry is really they're committing to be holy and separated unto God, which is a good thing. They're committing to keep the Sabbaths, both the weekly Sabbaths, the seven-year Sabbath, the, the feasts, which they also mention. They're committing to be obedient to God on a routine basis. And then they're committing to support the worship and the work of God in the temple. And I think as we'll see later on, there's some parallel commitments that we can be making based on these ideas. Which brings me to um, how, how do we understand and respond to this, which is really what I'd like to spend the remainder in the next two hours that I have speaking. Um, I don't have two hours uh, to talk about. So first of all, we should understand again, uh, because it's so easy, you know, with, with hindsight, which is 2020, it's so easy, isn't it, to look back on what people did and say, oh, what a mistake they made. Um, we should really recognize, you know, things in a balanced way. Their attitude or heart was amazing. I mean, these people were repentant. They were desiring to commit themselves to God. Um, they, their heart was very much in the right place. And we should be really careful about, you know, criticizing people who have a zeal and love for God, even if, you know, they're not necessarily being as wise as they could be about how they do things. Um, because it's important to have a zeal and a love for God. And these people had it, and that was great. And we could do with more of that. Um, But I want to think for a second about what they were committing themselves to do, because they were committing themselves to obey all the law of Moses and take upon themselves a curse if they failed. That, That might have been a mistake. So I want to use myself as a personal example for a second. So this morning... Okay, I I come to the mirror. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. I'm looking at my hair. 
you might look at my hair right now and say, yeah, it needs some work. Well, you should have seen it before. <laughs> this, is, this is afterwards. You should have seen it before. Tufts here, tufts there. And they weren't tufts that were on purpose. Um, it, it was a mess. And I looked at that mirror and I saw the problem. What if I had just turned away from that mirror and not done anything about it? You see, the mirror couldn't, mirror couldn't fix my hair, could it? I needed to take up a comb and a brush, and I ended up using both. And again, this was the best I could get. But the mirror did nothing for me. All it did was show me my problem. Then I needed something else to actually solve the problem. And the law is like that. It's not a bad thing to want to do what God tells you to do, of course. And it wasn't a bad thing for the Israelites to want to do God's will. But the law, even though it's perfect, it's holy, it's a revelation of God's holy character, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is not the law, the problem is us. But the law in itself shows you like a mirror, it shows you your problem, it doesn't fix the problem, it doesn't earn acceptance with God. I want to just read you a few verses, they're probably familiar from the New Testament about this. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh, that is no one, will be justified in his sight declared righteous in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All the law does is show us what a mess we are and how far we fall short. Romans chapter seven, verse five, it talks about the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work to bear fruit for death. So it's not even just that the law shows us what a mess we are. The law actually, in a sense, stirs us up to do the wrong thing. Okay, I mean, there's nothing that causes you want to do something as much as being told you can't do it. Right. I mean, I can give you a very simple illustration that is morally neutral, I believe. Okay, what I want you to do now for the next couple of seconds is under no circumstances. Think about alligators. Okay, none of you don't think about, you know, those things, snap, 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 snaggle tooth. Don't think about them. Don't think about alligators. You're thinking about alligators aren't you? You're thinking about, I just told you not to think about alligators. But the very fact that I told you not to think about alligators just made it an irresistible temptation to think about alligators. Probably you're not going to hear the rest of the message because your mind will be filled with thoughts of alligators. The law stirs us up being told we can't do something. That sign that says do not enter immediately makes you curious. I wonder what's in there. Maybe there's something that I would enjoy seeing or doing in there. So the law doesn't even just reveal our sin. It stirs up our sin, not because there's something wrong with the law, but because there's something wrong with us. Galatians 3.24 says, the law has become our tutor to, to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. The law is designed to bring us to the end of ourselves that we might turn to God's solution, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the Messiah who was delivered for us. And I think in various ways that applies, whether you know Christ as Savior already, or whether you don't know Christ as Savior, either way, the law and the failure that we get when we try to do what God tells us to do is designed to bring us to him. So how does this relate to our lives? Well, first of all, and again, you know, I, I look around, I know most of you, at least somewhat, some of you I know very well, but I don't know all of you perfectly. And certainly I don't know all the people who either might be listening now or might listen to this message later. So let me ask you a question. Are you still relying on the law? Or should I say maybe not the law, but are you still relying on your good works to somehow 
make yourself acceptable, um, to earn God's acceptance, to make, me, make you feel good about yourself? Is that what you're relying on? Because if it is several thousand years of history, would say it's probably not a really smart move, that perhaps you need to change your approach. Changing your approach when you're going the wrong direction is a really important thing, right? I, I teach anatomy and physiology in college, and it's a really, really tough course. I know one or two people who have, here who have either had that course or are taking it. Um, it's a really, really tough course. And so not surprisingly, a lot of students on the first exam of the semester, especially in the fall semester, uh, they're fresh out of high school, they fail. Some of them fail really badly, like 30s, 40s. Some of them fail better, like 50s. Um, a lot of them fail. It's not uncommon for half the class to fail, sometimes more than half the class to fail. Um, it's painful as an instructor. So what do I tell them to do? Well, just keep doing what you're doing. You'll probably be fine. No, that's a really dumb idea. You know, if you're failing at something, if something's not working, change what you're doing. Because if you keep doing the same thing the same way, you're probably just going to fail again. Um, you know, the, the idea is not, well, just dig in and do what you're doing. No, it's change something. You know, maybe it's spending for them. Maybe it's spending more time. Maybe it's getting into a study group. You know, th there's various things I tell them about how they can be more successful, how to engage with the material more actively. But for us, we probably need to recognize that seeking to earn God's acceptance, to be better accepted by God by what we do, or to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by what we do, which very often those two are closely intertwined, it's probably going to be a point of failure, probably has been and will continue to be. If you don't know Christ as Savior, I, I would ask you seriously, you know, to consider, you know, we most of us have probably heard Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You know, do you recognize that that's, that's you? I mean, that's me. Do you recognize that's you, that we're really hopeless without the Lord, that it's not a matter that, oh, you know, I'm really close. If I can just bump up just a little bit, I'm good. But no, it's more like trying to, you know, like jump across the Grand Canyon. You know, it's really wide. And, you know, me, I'm getting older and I was never a long jumper. I'm probably only getting a few feet out before I drop. You know, some of you are younger, stronger. Maybe you're going to get like five feet out before you start going down. Maybe you'll even get 10 feet out before you start getting down. No one is jumping to the other side of the Grand Canyon. It just ain't happening. We, we need the Lord. We need the one who came as God in the flesh to live a perfect life and to die in our place, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. We need to know Christ as Savior. We need to receive him. The Bible says as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. We need to take him as savior. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says we will be saved. So, you know, if by any chance there's someone who's here today or maybe listening later on who hasn't trusted Christ as savior, that's your dying need. That was my dying need. That's the need of all of us. But it's a very individual thing. It's not just a matter of believing, well, Christ died for the sins of the world. Hallelujah, that's wonderful. It is wonderful. But there's a sense in which we need to personally lay hold of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he in love has done on our behalf and personally received him as savior. But let's make the assumption, I hope it's a good assumption, that everyone who's listening to my voice, or at least most people, actually have received Christ as savior, whether that was a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever. 
um, that have received Christ as Savior, which, by the way, let me just, the Lord's bringing this to mind, so I'm going to say it. Let me just put in a plug for growing up in a Christian home. Because, look, if you grow up in a Christian home, you don't have this amazing testimony. And I was asked to share my testimony at a college ministry group this past week, and I did. Um, and it's a fairly exciting, interesting testimony of how God delivered me from a life of sin and, and all the miraculous things that he did to bring him to himself. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, and if you grew up in a Christian home, you don't have a testimony like, like that. You know, if you got saved when you were five years old, you probably don't have a testimony of God delivering you from a life of sin, I, I would hope, at five years old. Um, but you have something so much better. You have something so much better. You've been spared from that life and you've come to know Christ at an early age and have the privilege of growing up with the instruction and example of a, of a Christian home. Don't despise that or throw that away. Take advantage of that for all it's worth because it is a lovely and a wonderful thing. You grow up and you live your life apart from Christ in, until you're in your twenties or thirties or forties or fifties. There are consequences to the things that you've done. There's memories you'll never be able to to forget there's hurts that you've done to yourself and to others. Boy, it's a wonderful thing to grow up in a Christian home and come to know Christ when you're really young. But anyway, that's an aside. So let's assume you do know Christ, whether you came as a young person or you came as someone who was older. If you recognize who Christ is, you recognize as the people of Israel did that the Lord is the creator of all, however you feel that that played out, but you also recognize that the Lord is the one who redeemed you in Jesus Christ, then we belong to him, right? We're, we belong to him twofold. We're his by right of creation. We're his by right of redemption. We belong to him completely. And so, of course, the natural sh thing should be that as those who know Christ as Savior, we should be enjoying his love all the time, every day, and responding with life of just fruitfulness and blessing for ourselves and for other people all day, every day. That's your life, right? Okay, if everyone smiles and says yes, then sermon's over. Um, but probably not. I mean, I hope that is true of you to some extent. But you have to ask yourself, well, if, if that's not true, if I'm falling short of that, well, then what can I do to change that? Because remember, the people of Nehemiah's day, they accurately diagnosed that they were in trouble because of past sins and failures, because of their own weakness. They were slaves. That's not exactly the place we're at. But again, we're, we're going from then and applying to now. Um, but we need to recognize that we are in, in desperate need of God. In John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36, the Lord speaking to those who had at least outwardly believed in him. So he's not talking to people who all consider themselves to be his enemies. He's talking to people who at least outwardly had believed in them. Some of them hadn't actually come to know him. But in verse 31 of John chapter eight, he says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Okay, so, so the Lord's word is true and we can find freedom in that. They answered him, now, this is the mistake, we're Abraham's offspring. We've never yet been a slave to anyone. In verse 34, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If, therefore, the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So 
there is a need to recognize our need, but also to recognize that there is freedom in Christ. We're not going to be able to enjoy freedom and fruitfulness in life unless we recognize that we have need, that maybe we're not where we should be. We're not what we should be, that we desperately need the Lord's help. The Lord in John 15, again, addressing himself to believers, said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not going to bear fruit apart from him. We're not going to live the lives that we ought to apart from him. It's not a matter of getting saved and then you know, we go on our way and maybe report to our, back to God every once in a while how, how things are going. We're in desperate need of him on a daily and a, on a continual basis. It, you know, and we need to recognize that. It, it's sort of like, look, you don't go to a doctor, especially for something serious, maybe contemplate major surgery, unless you're convinced you need it. Okay? If you're not convinced that you need some type of medical intervention, you're not typically going to be very open to it. It's only when you recognize that you need it, that you're going to be open to it. And we need to recognize our need to find freedom and life through Lord Jesus, the good shepherd who died that he might bring us into abundant life, that one whose yoke is easy and his load is light. Um, And we desperately need that. So what led the people of Israel into recognizing their need and recommitting to him? Well, it was the word of God. Remember, they heard the word of God from Ezra early on at the beginning of that month of Tishri. They heard the word of God for that eight-day festival, you know, practically all day, it sounds like. They heard the word of God three hours a day for several days after that. It was the word of God that really worked in their lives you know, to deep down change them. And that's what you're going to need. And that's what I need, you know, because coming to something like this, I hope this is a a useful message. I I hope it's somewhat useful and reflects the word of God, but, you know, listening to a 40 or perhaps more likely 45 minute um, message once a week probably isn't going to transform your life, quite frankly. I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's a starvation diet. You know, it's probably not going to transform your life. You need to be in the word of God prayerfully, you know, steadily, consistently, every single day. And that will start to transform your life in a far deeper way. And I know it's, it's, it's easy not to find time for that um, because that happens. But as we are, that can transform us. That can motivate us as we see more about his love. And by the power of the spirit of God, we can do the same three things that the people of Israel did. What were those three things? Well, they committed to be holy, to the Lord, that we're not going to intermarry any longer. And, and, and there's direct application for us as believers, as far as that go, if you're considering a mate, but even more indirectly, they commit it to be holy and we can commit to be holy. We're called to be holy because he is holy. Okay. And holiness isn't, you know, about incense and candles and what clothes you're wearing and stuff like that. Holiness is being more like the Lord. Um, And I think it's best to be approached from a positive point of view, not the negative. I don't do this. I don't do that. I won't do this. I'm not allowed to do that. You know, all those lists of do's and don'ts. Once again, you're just sort of putting yourself under the law all over again. What good is that? The idea of holiness is seeking to positively be more like the Lord. We take the Lord Jesus as our example. We take the teaching of scripture as specific instruction. You see, I'm getting agreement back there. That sounds good. and, and we seek to be holy as the Lord is holy. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't care about or associate with people who don't know Christ. We, we need to do that. We, we need to love them and share Christ with them. But, we, but we're holy in how we live. We're obedient. The nation of Israel committed to be obedient on a routine basis. We should be obedient on a routine basis. Lord, what do you want me to do today? 
What do you want me to do? It may or may not be what I had planned to do, but that's okay because I believe that what you want to do is better than what I want to do. And then we need to worship him because remember, they supported the worship and the work of the temple. Well, we don't have a temple where we're offering sacrifices, but we can worship the Lord and we can support the work of God. And what's the work of God in this age? Well, it's, it's building his church. That's what God's concerned about. And we're not, I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about his church composed of every redeemed believer. That's what God's caring about. So for that last one, some practical ideas on how we can do that before I conclude. Um, well, one thing, of course, the worship side of things is what we did not very long ago. We, we worshiped the Lord in, in the breaking of bread, didn't we? Um, it's interesting. We're not commanded to come and worship. We're commanded to come and remember. That's what we're commanded to do. But worship flows as we do that. It's very, very hard to spend half an hour or an hour or whatever if you're a believer dwelling on the Lord Jesus, who he is and what he's done without beginning to worship him. The one flows from the other. And I have to tell you, uh, and some of you who know me really well for years, which isn't tons of you here, but it's some, um, you know, there was a time that didn't mean very much to me. And I'm talking about as a believer. Okay, I got saved. I was very excited for the Lord. Um, but, but then some things happened in my life and the Lord's table really became less something that was really central in my life. And either I didn't come at all, or I came late, or maybe I came on time, but my heart wasn't really there. My heart and mind were in a thousand other way places. It really wasn't very important to me. And I'm not talking about for a week or a month. I'm talking about for years. It just really wasn't something that I enjoyed all that much or got very much out of. I was there for a variety of reasons. I was there because of how it would look if I wasn't. I was there to be an example to other people. I was there out of guilt. But I wasn't necessarily there because this is something that's really important and exciting to me because it wasn't. Um, but then over time, um, God started to do a work in my life and I started to realize how wonderful it was to just be there and just think about God, think about the Lord Jesus hear other people saying good things about him. You go out to work or school or your neighborhood or whatever, you know, Jesus Christ, that's a curse word. You don't hear people saying very much good about the Lord Jesus Christ, but to be there among other believers and hear people saying nice things about him and, and to, you know, sing some cool hymns and to read the Bible and to pray and to consider him for half an hour, an hour. It's, it's, it's a slice of heaven. Uh, to me, it's the most wonderful, and important time of, of the week at this point. Uh, not because I was told it had to be, but because it's grown to be. And I would encourage you to, con to consider that. You know, from my own experience, I know telling you, uh, which sometimes I think I've made the mistake of doing even from this pulpit, you know, telling you you, you should do this is probably not the most helpful thing in the world. Um, but it is a wonderful opportunity. But then, too, in addition to worshiping the Lord, we're supposed to be busy in the process of building his church. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do that with the various abilities and opportunities and spiritual gifts and ministries that the Lord gives us. And if you want to read about spiritual gifts, which is not the topic of this message, that's another good hour by itself. Look at the twelves and the fours, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. You go to those, you'll find out all about the individual gifts. Um, but we all have different gifts and abilities that we can use. And I think a wonderful example is what happened here yesterday. Okay, and I know a number of you were here and, and some of you weren't able to be here or forgot about it, which I have done a gazillion times. I have not shown up for a lot of chapel work days, I have to say to my shame. 
Uh, but I was here yesterday and it was a great experience, not just getting a chance to do, you know, the little bit that I did, but also watching what everyone else was doing. There was a whole bunch of people here with different abilities serving the Lord in different ways. And some people were doing things that I could never have done. I probably would have gotten killed trying to do it, going up on really tall ladders. Not a good idea for me. You know, I'd be in the ER. Um, but there was people who were, who were together serving the Lord, using their various abilities to be able to together do a work for God. And, and that's really how the church works. We take the gifts and abilities we have, some public, some private, um, some flashy and some not so flashy, but we use them to serve the Lord, whether that's encouraging, whether that's teaching, whether that's showing mercy, whether that's giving, whether that's evangelism, you know, whatever it is, you know, some practical things that you can do, we can share Christ with others. That's not something just for preachers on the pulpit. We can gossip the gospel. We can share this amazing, wonderful message with our schoolmates, our friends, our neighbors, our family, family, that's scary. Um, we can show hospitality, which literally means love for strangers. And, and that can be in your home. That can also, maybe you don't have a home or you don't feel comfortable bringing someone to your home. Well, take someone out for a cup of coffee, have a soda with them, you know, go out for a hamburger, you know, just spend time with someone and show the love of Christ as you do. We can show mercy and encouragement, you know, through letters, through phone calls, through emails, through texts, through Facebook Messenger, through whatever, by stopping by just to say hi to someone. We, we can come up to someone and help them. We can pray for them, but we can also pray with them. When someone asks for prayer, why don't you sometimes, instead of just saying, okay, I'll pray for you, why don't you just say, hey, let's pray together for a minute. You don't need to make it a big solemn affair. Just pray, pray with them. That shows love to them in a very tangible way. Give them a hug. Show the love of Christ. Be in a Bible study. Be in a small group. We have some here. There's others available. And get involved in a small group. You can learn the word of God. You can do a little teaching of the word of God, perhaps there. You can fellowship. You can have community. So much we can be doing. Okay, it's time for me to conclude because I'm past my 40 minutes. I'm sorry. Um, so again, I, I, I had a pretty wide net as I was preparing for this message and I was reading in a lot of different places. One interesting thing I found out is the roots of this assembly. Um, which I knew a little bit about, but I, I learned a bit more. So, so Terra Road had its roots in a group of believers who first met together in Plainfield in 1870. You heard me right. It's not 1970, which for some of you, that's a long time ago. Um, but 1870, 1870, that means two years ago was our 150th anniversary. And we totally missed that. I wonder, was there anything going on in 2020 that would have made us miss that? Oh, yes. Um, but still... 150 years. That's amazing. Now, they themselves were an outgrowth of a movement of God's spirit in the United Kingdom that goes back to the you know, early to mid-1800s, in which some precious truths, like the priesthood of all believers, the autonomy of the local church, uh, were rediscovered, uh, which has had just an awesome impact, not just on that little group of churches, but on the evangelical church worldwide uh, since then. Now, look, we, we can't live in the past we shouldn't live in the past. We shouldn't go around saying we're 150 years old, um, but we can be motivated by it. Those, those were a group of believers who was zealous for the word of God and really wanted to live it out in their lives. Well, maybe we can be zealous for the word of God and, and really want to live it out in our lives. Even more importantly, um, as I mentioned, I think before, uh, this is Palm Sunday. Um, 
it's, it's the week that we recall the Lord's entry into Jerusalem. And that was the last week of his life. That, that was the week that he, before he was going to die. It takes up a huge amount of scripture. Have you ever noticed that? You look in the gospels, typically about a quarter of each of the gospels is that last week of his life, which probably tells you sort of important. Um, it's the last life week of our Lord's life. And that life was a perfect life. It was the culmination of his perfect life that he had lived zealously day in and day out, seeking to do the father's will and finally becoming obedient to the point of death, even the the death of the cross. I think that that should be a huge motivation for us And considering our Lord and what he was willing to do for us. We can imitate him, not probably by going to a cross, but we can imitate him by being zealous to do the father's will. Um, and to enjoy fellowship with the Lord, and he certainly did, but also to do the Father's will. Like the people of Nehemiah's time, we can recognize who God is. We can recognize our own need. We can rest in the fact that we're accepted by the Lord, and we understand that far better than they could have back then. Then we can seek to be more like our Savior by being holy, separated to the Lord, as they determined to do, by being obedient to the Lord, and by being busy in the work of God, which is building his church. I would say that perhaps um, it's time for us as an assembly, as well as individuals to really seek revival and to seek renewal. And again, we think of revival, we think of big tents and preachers and black suits and pulpits, you know, at least some of us think that way. But, you know, revival starts in the individual as we're exposed to the word of God. And as we determine to commit ourselves to the Lord We need to study the word of God. We need to be willing to be broken by it and transformed by it. We need to rejoice in the Lord and in his love, but then we need to go forth to seek to serve him. And we can see transformation in our lives, in our church, and in our community as we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. We thank you for the fact that uh, why we can learn from these people from literally 2,400 years ago. We thank you for all that's happened since then, that unlike them, who only had perhaps at best a dim understanding of the coming Messiah and the deliverance and forgiveness that was available in him, pictured as it was through their sacrificial system, but not fully revealed, that we unlike them, can look back to a finished work, that we can look back to your son, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, who bore the sins of the world, that we can look back to the one who's done it all for us. We thank you so much for him. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that it's no longer, it never really was, but it's clearly not a matter of us somehow earning your acceptance by being good enough, by doing just a little bit more. Um, instead, the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future, has been paid by your Son. And if we put our faith in Christ as Savior, and I would ask, Lord, that if there's any who are here or who are listening who have not done that, that they might do that perhaps today. That if we put our faith in Christ as Savior and have done that, that we can know complete acceptance, that we can know that we are beloved and loved. We are loved just as much as your Son. And that's weird to say, because we know you love your son a lot. 
but we are loved just as much as your son. There is nothing we can do to make you love us more or that we can do to make you love us less. We are fully accepted in him. We thank you for that. We pray that considering your son, who he is, what he's done and our full acceptance in him, and then seeing our own shortcomings in your word as a mirror, which stir us and will both convict us as well as encourage us to press on, Lord, to see change in our lives, ongoing change, because this is not a matter of a resolution and then everything's better, but ongoing change in our lives and seeking to live lives that are holy and seeking to be obedient on a day-to-day basis and to seeking to do more of what we can to be part of your mighty work in this age of building your church as we look forward to the coming of your son. We pray in his name. Amen.